Well, good evening, everyone. If you've got a Bible, please do turn to it on your phones or a paper version to that lovely passage we've just had read to us in Philippians chapter 2. I'll put it there and try not to kick it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Spirit, you would do a work in our lives and you would make us more like you. Amen. Well, tonight we continue our series looking at the seven deadly vices and the seven godly virtues that we started a week or two ago. 2,400 years ago in Greece, the philosophers were the rock stars. And in fact, they were the original hipsters. I think we've got some pictures here, and you can see just how sharp and cool they look. And the fact is that they, <laughs> they did give serious attention to their beards and haircuts. Let's go back to the first one. We'll stay there for a bit. There was a philosopher called, called Gorgias, and he was a contemporary of Socrates. And he uh, didn't like Socrates, and he wrote a booklet against Socrates saying that Socrates couldn't grow a beard, but instead would go to barber shops and steal the remains of uh, trimmings from others and glue it to his face. In fact, a fake wig beard that he wore. Plato, well, he had a long beard and a sharp, short haircut. But Aristotle, just look at him. What a beauty. Super fresh. And uh, he had very coiffured hair and a beard. And as I said, they were, we can see the next picture, as you can see, just what they remind me of, they were the original hipsters. But Aristotle put this question to us. He said, the most important question in the world is how shall we live? How are we going to live? And the philosophers worked on this, and they concluded that there were two ways to live. You can live a virtuous life, a good life, a moral life, an upright life, an ethical life, or you can live a life that is dominated by vice. The philosophers couldn't actually help us live a good life and we didn't need any help to live a life marked by vice. They simply described these two ways to live. And they reduced the sort of catalog of possible virtues and a catalog of vices down to seven of each, like a perfect number. And 300 years after these philosophers, the church is born, and she takes these lists, the seven virtues and the seven vices. But instead of just saying, this is how we should live, one way to live and not this way, she also, unlike the Greek philosophers, offers us an example of someone who really did live the virtuous life, that being Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And the church also offered us, by the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins when we mess up and fail to live that virtuous life, but indeed slip into some of that vice. And she also offered us, through God, the gift of the Spirit to enable us 
to live the virtuous life. So as we work through this series over the next few weeks, we, we need to remember those three things when we're looking at all these pairings, that Jesus is the perfect example, that forgiveness is available to us whenever, however, we mess up, and that the Spirit is there to create in us uh, the character of Jesus that we aspire to. Well, this evening, we're looking at, I'm going to drop this down a bit. No, I'm not. This evening, we're going to look at pride and humility. Pride, is that the same? <laughs> That's not the same, is it? I failed my math so level and I didn't even sit a physics one, but yes, that's better. I can see what I'm looking at now. This evening we're looking at pride and humility, and I'm just going to make three simple points. And the first one's this, that the nature of pride is to make much of ourselves. The nature of pride is to make much of ourselves. The second point will be that the nature of humility is to make much of others. And then thirdly, the nature of God is to make much of the humble. First then, pride makes much of ourselves. Now, not all pride is a sin. Not all pride is a vice. Not all pride is wrong. It's right to take pride in things that are done well. Some pride is appropriate. It's proper. Taking pride in a, in a job completed well. Taking uh, pride in your children or someone that you care for. Years ago when I was a student chaplain, someone sent me an email. They said, you might want to read this. This is doing the rounds and people are uh, 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 taking the mick of you. And uh, one of the students had written saying, oh, I'm not going to go to student night tonight. Let, who wants to go out and get lashed? That's what he said. And then he said, um, it's just going to be Simon again talking about his sons. And then he was off on one, the writer of this. He said, why does he always go on about his sons? It's actually because <laughs> they're there and they're a good illustration. But he said, he goes on about his sons because he wants us to know he's virile. <laughs> that was the email, you know. <laughs> I thought, I am, but that isn't the reason why I've written it. I talk about my sons because I'm proud of them and I just want to show them off. Not all pride is wrong, but there is a deadly form of pride. A pride that puffs up, and in puffing yourself up, you put other people down. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don and writer, in a chapter in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter called The Great Sin, the big one. And the big sin is this one, it's pride. And he says this, a proud person is always looking down on things and people. They're always looking down their nose and down upon someone. And as long as you are looking down, you cannot see that something or someone is above you. And this is the nature of destructive, sinful pride. It involves comparison. It works from your strength to someone else's weakness 
And it can affect all aspects, all dimensions of our life. Here in Oxford, there's often an intellectual pride. I go to a better university than yours, or I'm at a better college than yours, or I am doing a more intelligent degree than yours, or I'm doing a higher degree than yours, or I've got a better grade in my degree than yours. An intellectual pride. There's a lot of that here in this place. There can be physical pride. I'm better looking than you. I got a better body than you. I got a better set of teeth than you. I got better skin than you. I'm a better athlete than you. I can run better times than you. I can lift more weights than you. I lift about 18 stone every morning when I get out of bed. <laughs> And then there's a social pride. I went to a better school than you. I mix in a better circle than you. I've got more Instagram followers than you. You know, there can even be a spiritual pride. I have better quiet times than you. I pray in tongues more than you. I'm on the worship team. I'm on the ministry team. The church leaders talk to me more than they do to you. There's always a comparison. And we are puffed up and others are put down. There's a material pride. I've got better stuff than you, a better job than you, a better holidays than you, better kit than you, a better car than you, better home than you, and so on. And the pride that is destructive, the pride that is a vice, the pride that is a sin is the pride that puts yourself up whilst putting others down. And in our reading in Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, you've got to think like this. Have this mind in you. Think like this. In all your dealings with others, it says, think like this. Though being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The nature of pride is always a kind of grasping at something, pulling oneself up over another. And I actually think that reference is an oblique reference to the devil and also to the fall. The devil grasped at being like God. According to Jewish tradition, in Isaiah chapter 14, we look at some of the initial origins of, of the fall of the demonic, the fall of Satan, that ultimately led to the fall of man and so on. And in there we see five times it says, this little phrase, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it's this being, this personality who, who says they're going to set their throne up against God. I will, I will, I will. The thing was, the devil, according to Jewish tradition, was an archangel and he was a worship leader. He led the choirs of worship of angels in heaven, but over eons and eons, according to tradition, he ended up wanting it for himself. Rather than being a conduit and passing it on to God, he wanted to steal a bit of the glory that went to God. And tradition tells us with a third of the angels, he rose up against God, and God said, you must be joking. 
and kicked him out. Worship puts God at the center. But pride at its worst is wanting to put ourselves at the center and to receive worship. And I think this idea of something to be grasped is also what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. God made them as the crown of creation. God made them in his image. God put them in a paradise. He put them in this garden. He left them with each other naked. God designed that. All that wonder and beauty and joy and satisfaction, God gave it to them. God gave them authority to rule. They were in charge of everything. And there's just one thing they couldn't do. And then the demonic comes and says, God is holding out on you. God doesn't want you to be like him. Go on. Eat the forbidden fruit and then you will know what he knows. And so they listen to the twisted lies of the twisted serpent. And they grasped at something. And in grasping, there was a great undoing for them and for all the world. Pride is the father of all sins. It is a grasping at what is God's. It ultimately is about self-worship. And it goes before a fall. As I said, Isaiah 14, you might like to look at it at some point. The demonic is saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's just replete with personal pronouns. Me, my, I, me at the center, me getting the worship, me having the position. And then God speaks. And three times we have a phrase that says, down, down, down. He tried to assert himself up with God, and God had to put him down. Years ago, I was a guest at an Oxford College high table for a particular swanky affair. And uh, I just preached in chapel. I was there in my robes, and everyone else was in their, you know, fine dining kit. And um, there was another guest who was clearly um, not used to the environment, and he was enjoying drinking and a bit too much champagne. And, uh, you know, he was just sort of really swelling in the context. And the, I was stood next to him, and I was stood here with the, the, the college master or provost, and he looked out the window, and people were walking by. And this guy holding his champagne says, Ah, the hoi polloi. Ah, the hoi polloi. I'm stood there listening to him. And next to me is the college professor who, uh, the college principal, who was also a professor of classics. Now, the word polloi is just a Greek word. It just means ordinary people. Ah, the ordinary people. It was a way of him kind of sneering at them and enjoying the moment. But he'd said... The hoi polloi. And hoi actually means the in Greek. I knew that much. So what he'd said was, ah, the, the people. <laughs> of course, I should have just let it sit, but he'd been putting them down. And so I said to the principal, <laughs> I said, tell me, sir, doesn't hoi polloi mean the people? In which case, he's just said the, the people. 
And the provost was a bit embarrassed. He said, yeah, that, that, that's what it means. I made my point. He put them down, and I put him down. And the provost was probably looking down at me. And I'm sure the Lord was looking down at me and us. So often, we want to put others down and build ourselves up. Ah, the hoi polloi, them, the plebs there. But actually, the perspective we need is not us looking to them, but us looking up to the Lord and seeing who is the creature and who is the creator. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Bit heavy, bit deep. Pride makes much of ourselves. And then secondly, humility makes much of others. Our reading in Philippians goes on to say, verse 7, but Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a slave, taking the form of a servant. The devil was a servant who grasped at being a god. And Adam and Eve were exalted over all creation, yet they too grasped at being God. But Jesus amazingly was God, who humbly embraced being a servant. And that's the mark of humility. It doesn't look down on people, even though on some kind of worldly criteria it might be able to do that. It doesn't make a comparison. True humility is there and cares, and it stoops, and it takes the form of a servant, not the one being served. And if pride is marked by, I will ascend, I will rise up, I will make my throne like the Most High, and so on. Humility is downward mobility. This is humility. Mark Brickman, in his wonderful book, Borderlands, calls it descending discipleship. You don't want God to put you down. You want to bring yourself down yourself. Not in the kind of, oh, woe is me, kind of, I'm ever so humble I am. Not that but serving the other try, rather than trying to promote yourself over them. Donald Trump said, the new pope is a very humble guy, just like me. <laughs> That's not the sort of humility I'm talking about. We're talking about looking like Jesus. You know, at his birth, the wise men, the magi, the noble, educated ones came far from the east on a long journey to pay homage and to, to give worship to the one that the stars said had been born king of the Jews. And where did they go? Well, they went where they thought the king would be born. They went to Herod the king's palace. Only the king of kings wasn't in the king's palace. He was in a stable. And he wasn't sat on a throne. He was lying in a manger. He is our example. Who, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but instead he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. We see Jesus' humility in his incarnation. Just imagine the creator of the universe the Word, 
the rationalizing, ordering principle of all life, reduces himself to a mass of cells, a zygote implanted in a virgin's womb. How about that for humility? We see his humility in his introduction, as I said, born in a stable and laid in a manger. We see his humility in his possessions. He had nowhere to lay his head. We see his humility in his associations. He was friends with tax collectors. They were like the lowest of the low then. The tax, because the, anyway, the, we wouldn't have they, The tax collectors and the sinners. And the these were his friends, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, quizlings. Those that all the religious looked down upon, he hung out with. He loved them. We see his humility in his discretion. When he healed people, he said, don't, go te don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. I don't need you to do my publicity. Don't tell anyone. We see his humility in his procession into Jerusalem, meek and lowly and riding on a donkey, not some great war chariot, war, you know, chariot of war or noble steed, a donkey. We see his humility in his actions, taking a towel. He knelt and washed their feet. God washing feet. We see ultimately his humility in his crucifixion, naked and abused and humiliated and mocked and scorned and ridiculed, and he takes it all. And at any point he could call legions of angels and wipe the lot out, but he doesn't. He takes it and he takes our sin and dies in our stead and then we'll rise again victorious. Jesus is our example of humility. He's the only being in the universe who really could strut. I mean, seriously strut. And yet he becomes a servant. Pride puts yourself first. Humility puts others first. Seventy years ago today, what our wonderful queen, Princess Elizabeth, assessed to the throne. And then later in June 53 was her coronation. And she was married, as we know, to Prince Philip. And he was a royal in his own right, a very patrician, uh, noble man. He had been the prince of Greece. He was a distinguished and decorated and gifted naval officer, and he'd married this shy princess who within a few years became queen. That was unexpected when he married her. In the fictional series, The Crown, which I've only watched a bit of, and it's a remarkable production, there is a scene where Prince Philip objects to kneeling before the queen at a coronation. But you know, it's utter nonsense. It's a complete fabrication. And it was fabricated by the writers who I think just could not imagine that this proud patrician prince would readily kneel before his little wife, even if she was the queen, except it never happened. And the reality is, of course, as we know, that for all those years together, 74 years he loved and served, and he walked behind her every step of the way. Because he loved her, and he honored her, and she 
was on the throne. Pride puts itself up. Humility bows down and puts others first. And then lastly, the Father in heaven makes much of humility. Verse 9, Therefore, saying of Jesus, therefore, he having not grasped in pride, but having humbled himself and emptied himself and served others, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It was a prophetic word. It's true for us, and it was true for him. And the eternal king of glory, who eternally was robed in majesty, takes human flesh. And he goes from eternity to here. He goes from riches to rags in order that he might save us. And so the Father honors him with the honor and glory he had from all eternity, installing him on his throne. And before a myriad and myriad of angels boasts, this is my son, this is my boy, and he gets the name. And one day every knee will bow before him. Spiders have got knees and they're going to bow. And bees have knees and they're going to bow. And elephants have knees, they're going to bow. And then every human will bow. And all those who didn't believe him, all those who rejected him, all those who persecuted him, they will all bow before him and say, you are Lord. But the amazing thing is this. Pride grasps at being divine, which is absurd because it, it fails every time. And yet the very reason that Jesus emptied himself and joined us and became one of us was in order to elevate us. He, as it were, is reduced in order that we might grow. He becomes less so that we might see increase. And he comes to save us and to elevate us and to make us sons of God. In the garden, Adam and Eve were in the image of God. But in paradise, in eternity, we will be the very children sons and daughters of God. And he, according to Paul, seats us with him in heavenly realms. I mean, that is mind-blowing. We spend our lives striving and straining, and at times where there is this vice to put ourselves up and over to be able to look down on others. Jesus gives it all up to put us with him where we might sit and reign with him. Amazing. But God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. The Father makes much of humility. Stephen, I don't want to embarrass him, the rector of St. Aldate's. And God had given him great authority and responsibility and a remarkable ministry. Before this, he'll never talk about it. Before this, he was in charge of Alpha of the world. And where does it all begin? The barrister becomes a barista 
and does and is in the east end of London making coffee. And God says, ah, there's someone I can trust with authority and responsibility. And he says, come up higher. I need to conclude. George Carey is a former Archbishop of Canterbury. He grew up on a post-war council estate in Dagenham. And he became a Christian in his teens and later trained to be a vicar. And he became a vicar in Durham at a church called St. Nick's. And he turned this church around and and real life, it just, it just came alive and flourished under his ministry. Lots of students in the church. It was fantastic. And a story is written about his time there called Church in the Marketplace. Any of you know there, the church is literally right there in the market square. And next to the church, attached to the church, are some public toilets. Only it's not quite clear whose they are. Are they the, the councils or are they the churches? And because you can get from, them, from the church into these blues, they, be, they came under the church. And every Monday morning for years, George Carey gave himself the job of cleaning the loos. Not on a, mon- not on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. They weren't cleaned on a Saturday. They weren't cleaned on a Sunday. All the partying, all the students, public loos, just imagine... Monday morning in the public loose. And every Monday morning, on his knees, this man, this vicar, was scrubbing the loose and cleaning them down. I remember reading that and being amazed at his humility. That was when he was working at a theological college. And then not long after that, in the autumn of 1990, to everyone's total surprise, except God and the angels, he was made the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the most senior Anglican clergy person in the world. And some criticized the appointment. He just, you know, he's not the right sort. He's not the right stock. He's not got the right education. He didn't go to the right school. He didn't go to the right university. He doesn't sound right. And there was a lot of that sniffy posturing, I remember. And it went on. And it was a difficult job, and he will have made mistakes. But I think God saw a person of humility, serving others, and cleaning up the filth, just like the Lord, just like Jesus. I was rung the day he was appointed to be Archbishop of Canterbury. Someone rang me and said, you'll never guess what. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. But he told me that he'd been appointed to be the archbishop. And that was the day I actually offered myself to go forward to consider ordination uh, 30 years, 32 years later. I thought, well, if the head of the church is someone like that, then it's the church I want to belong to. This is by no means a perfect church. At times there is vice and historic wrongdoing and all of that. But a church that imitates its Lord, a church that's filled with the Spirit, a church that knows the cleansing and forgiveness of the Father, is a church that's humble, that puts other people first rather than putting themselves first, 
that's prepared to clean toilets and clean up people's lives. And I want to be part of a church like that. Virtues or vices. Pride makes much of yourself. Humility makes much of others. And God makes much of those who humble themselves. Amen. Well, let's stand. Band are going to come up and let's worship the Lord.